My name's uh, Nick Grimsh, um, Russell Kane, and you're listening to the Henley Festival podcast. Monty! Yes, hello and welcome to the Henley Festival podcast. Exclusive interviews from acts and artists who appeared at the festival in 2017. Coming up, we'll be hearing more from Russell Kane, getting a slightly surreal peep into his backstage pre-gig preparations. We'll find out what it's like to be top of the pops in Korea with singer-songwriter Emma Stevens. The Thinking Drinkers will tell us about their unique cocktail of comedy and, well, cocktails. And Ruby Turner will share stories about her amazing career, life on the road with Boy George in the 80s, and the time Jules Holland asked Idris Elba to marry her. Idris didn't know what about himself. I went, <laughs> and I sat, I bolted up in bed. I went, oh, ow, I gotta get me a big hat. <laughs> Anyone who witnessed Russell Kane at the Henley Festival was lucky enough to see a comedian on top form. Much of his act was improvised and the crowd was left dazed by the energy and aching with laughter. It was truly unforgettable. I was lucky enough to speak to him just moments before he went on stage, but as you're about to hear, it wasn't necessarily a traditional, straightforward interview. Prepare for a bit of fruity language, nothing too bad, and a nice hot drink. Okay, I'm here with Russell Kane. We're, we're backstage. The, the, the voice you hear laughing in the background is is a uh, young Amanda who's helped set Some up this girl interview. Some has got backstage, isn't it? <laughs> I stay away from my night harachis. What's going ended. on, Russell? <laughs> it's just nice to be doing a gig where I can leave my night harachis out on my iPhone. I know it's going to be here when I get out. If anything, it's going to be upgraded. <laughs> uh, someone walked past. I saw a six S, and I just you know I, I swapped it for a seven. It just wasn't right. <laughs> yeah, so we, we're making. Well, we are. You're making coffee. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Well, why, is, why so poor? What's well, going on? So this is a bit of a dodgy stage because my self-plunging coffee mug is actually a bit broken. You've brought so, that with you, haven't you? So when the seal seal goes, Ooh. it does that. See, but I'm ready for it. Coffee just spilled everywhere there. It's so, quite dangerous. So you sell, I self-plunge, so I, it's real coffee. I can't drink uh, Nescafe or anything like that. I need to know the caffeine dose. And I'm going to pour that coffee onto a mixture of highly refined coconut oil called MCT oil. <laughs> if you want to buy the proper branded one, this is Henley. So if you want to get the real one that I've got, it's called a brain octane oil which is like the poshest okay it's like a tasteless highly refined coconut oil so that all you're getting is the medium chain triglyceride acids you're not getting anything else in there fats rather and uh and into that you're going to put some grass fed butter which yeah. goes in as well so this oh is my goodness this is me Kerrygold is the only grass fed butter you can buy in the UK don't waste your money on organic grain fed so butter is going into the cup and the, the coconut in it. and then into that mixture you just because we're, we're working with a small cup here normally if I was backstage I'd have like a big deluxe mug and this could go every, everywhere if you don't know what you're doing so I now I'm going to whisk the butter into the coffee that's a that's a real let me get the sound of the real whisk sound of the real whisk I'm whipping the butter and MCT oil into the coffee to create what's called a bulletproof coffee, a high-fat, zero-carb, zero-protein drink that when you see the 60 minutes I'm about to produce will make sense. <laughs> they, may well, they may well have taken the swans off of the Thames, but doves will emerge from my arse before I get oh, on <laughs> Wow. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying it's a strong drink. <laughs> but strap in, mofo. I'm going to go on in my jacket and instantly take it off. It's just too warm. yeah. Right? I'm a firm believer in you should be dressed roughly the same as your audience, which is why I normally go on in sort of no tie, not a posh, just a normal suit. So it's not like I've got a bought a posh shirt and obviously completely wrong decision. So. You look very smart though, you look pretty swish. It's the nature of the act, it's very physical and uh, I don't want to lose energy just because I'm trying to dress more smartly. So that's what I've got to think about in my 
23 minutes before stage time. And it's the right man, wrong age, you're doing that, or is it something well, different to that tonight? I do that because that touring show is 35 minutes interval, then an hour and 20. Oh. I've got 60 minutes tonight. So I've, I'm just doing that's what's called like a 60 minute set rather than a full tour show. Um, so I'll probably improvise for about 15 minutes. Don't know how many other comics have done that. Paul Foot probably did that the other night. Um, so I'll improvise for a bit because it's just so much funny stuff here. I mean, yeah. this. As a security guard to police, where the people are wearing ties, I mean, come on, man. <laughs> uh, Reads it's like so they can knock the cat out of your hand, so you don't walk into a tree. <laughs> what do you What do you think of when you think of Henley? What do you know about the place? Well, uh, everything. I expect there to be Thai police and a Swan Patrol, and there are both things. <laughs> <laughs> there is a, an actual Swan Patrol. That's come on in, in you come, Monty. Of all the swans have been taken in, in case they get offended by the noise. <laughs> and so is this your normal preparation pre Every night I always have uh, a bulletproof coffee before I go on. Uh, is this changed? Has it always been this kind of state? I've always caffeinated before yeah. I go on. But it's only in the last 18 months I've found the absolute secret to amazing energy. Which with what I do, it's not just about staying younger and healthy. Obviously I've got an interest in that. But I've got an athletic act. I can't sit down on a chair and tell jokes. It's the physical performance is part of it. And uh, so I have to, I've just, I've, for me, cracked the perfect diet. I'm convinced it's the perfect diet for most people as well. High fat, moderate protein, low carb, do anything on that. Have you ever had any bizarre rider requests that you put in or that you've received? I think the most bizarre rider request is that I don't want anything because I bring all my own stuff. So I'd never use anything. We bring our own water, I've got my own coffee. I mean, that's bizarre in itself. I've used nothing except water when I'm here. So that's quite odd in itself. What about post gig? Post gig is normally a drop, what's called, there's two types, there's three types of exit from a gig. There's a normal exit where I come backstage, get changed, maybe do a couple of photos with the people that have hung around. Uh, there's a, a showbiz exit where I run from the stage into the car and there's a drama showbiz exit where Dean will actually have the car backed up to the gate and while they're still clapping I'm into the car and out. What's it going to be tonight do you think? Because I've got such an early flight tomorrow I might go just for a showbiz jog across while they're still clapping. And, I, and then I get changed in the car. But can you imagine trying to get these skinnies off? <laughs> it's a good job I tal I've talked my trousers before I put them on. You haven't really, really. You have, no, 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 no. <laughs> if I tell my trousers, I'd dodge you with that look if I started leaking white powder out of my leg halfway through a gig. That's one hell of an act. I know, I know. <laughs> when well, I see you doing that in a couple of years' time, I can know that I was there at the genesis yeah. of the idea. But honestly, I can't get out of these shows, so I have to get changed in the car. It's really hard to get these, to get these off. There you go. Russell, thank you so much. Thank My you for pleasure. sparing your time moments before you go this on stage. This is pre-caffeinated. I'd just like to point that out. When do you get... Ca oh, shit, sorry. I sprayed <laughs> I'm so sorry. I just sprayed this both with coffee. I've got coffee all over. How am I going to get past well, the soup, please? Me. I'm so sorry. I've just, just for the benefit of the recording, I've just sprayed coffee onto the white shirt of the person interviewing me. Probably got to go meet Goldie. I'm so sorry. I've met him already, so I should be all right. I don't what, think he'd care. Have I been done? Yeah, I have. You're so we've, right. both, we've both been done. For coffee day. twins. Russell, thank you so much. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Hi, I'm Sarah Pascoe, and you're listening to the Henley Festival podcast. If you're a fan of soul, gospel or R&B, then you're probably a fan of Ruby Turner. Her big break came in the mid-80s when she joined Culture Club at the height of their fame. She then started having hits of her own. Ruby also formed a lasting friendship with Jules Holland and regularly sings with him. At the Henley Festival, she was performing her solo show on the floating stage and I caught up with her a few moments after. She reminisced about those heady days of the 80s, and also the time Jules put her in a bit of a tight spot. 
it's my work, it's what I do. I mean, if you're playing in front of, you know, 70,000, which I did, you know, two weeks ago at Glastonbury Jewels, and today, you know, people are just flittering in and out and just having a wonderful evening time. It's, it matters none what I have, like I say, I come with what I'm coming with, and it's my music. You come with the music, you're there to sing and you get on with it, you know. You play an awful lot with Jules Holland, of course. I read a quote from him the other day. He says, it takes a lot, but you would not want to make Ruby cross. <laughs> She's very protective of people. He went on to say, yes, what happens yeah. when you get cross? You don't want to know. <laughs> don't ask. But don't test me either. <laughs> but it's been an amazing relationship you two guys have had over the years. Yeah, it, it, you know, he's wonderful. He's such, he's such a generous... You know, once again, like I think Jules and I have this, this real affinity where we... You know, it's music that we love. It's it's what binds us together, what keeps us together. It's why we're still doing what we're doing. You know, it's not um. And at the same time, I also respect the fact that it's his band. You know, so I don't go storming in there and taking over and be, it ain't that. It's his thing, and you have to respect that. And when I come out and do my thing, I do my thing. But it's just one of those. You just grow up really in this business. And and once again, you know, like I say, if you're there to serve the music, you have no problem. And. Didn't he once ask Idris Elba to marry you? Is that true? Tell me that. Oh, my goodness me. <laughs> I was there watching, you know, one of the laters with Jules Holland. And Idris didn't know what to put himself. I went, <laughs> and I sat, I bolted up in bed. I went, oh, ow, i got to get me a big hat. <laughs> oh, marvellous. Oh, it was so blessing. He went, well, yeah, you're all right. Oh, my heaven. No, you won't. You're just saying it. But he's not said no yet, has he? Hey, listen, mate. <laughs> Leave it out. Leave it out. <laughs> now, um, when did you first realise that you could sing? Do you remember? If you, I presume you always sung as a child. When did first you think, hang on, hang on, I can do this? No, I, I, th I, you know, these things. People ask you that, but I don't go out with the intentions. I actually started in theatre. Okay. So you know, I started acting, and then from the acting, you know, you have to sort of be, be an all-rounder in theatre. So we're singing and a bit of dancing and what have you. But I remember when I started out in seventy, in the early seventies, really. I was a mere sixteen-year-old when I joined theatre, and a theatre group. I joined a theatre group, the ad hoc theatre run by my then manager, became my manager, mm. and we took a little piece to Edinburgh, okay. the Edinburgh Festival in seventy-seven. Yeah, I was a mere eighteen-year-old. I came back and they sat me down and went, "You're gonna have to sing." <laughs> yeah, and I think, and what it is, I think it's the effect, you know, it's a call and response, it's the effect. And then you, you realise that what you're doing, you're conveying something that's registering. And I think you can't put a, you can't, it's hard, if you start to, what's the word, manufacture that, yeah. then it stops being real. And I think at a very young age I was doing that, so I think I've just carried on. So if that kind of change, as it were, happened in the late 70s, it wouldn't have been long after that when you were singing with Culture Club, what was it like being in and around that in the early 80s? It was amazing, quite amazing. But also, um, it was a very big learning curve. Too. Was that recording and live work? Yeah, yeah, we, we did some... Well, I was, I think I managed to get on two albums, I'm quite sure, such a long time ago, people. <laughs> um, but we toured America for a year, I was with it for a year. Yeah. And, you know, for me, it really was a real learning curve as to how the business worked. I learned how the business worked very early on. Really? Just being on the sideline. I was just a backing singer. Watching, they were in Madison Square Gardens, they walk on, it's like, whoa, and it goes through the roof. You go, okay. But something very simple occurred to me. 
you still have to put perform the music. It's mm. still about the music. Now George, George was lovely. George can put the music across, but George is theatre. And he worked, he knew how to work that, he played that well. So I was learning about that kind of thing too, you know, but yeah. But at the same time, George is George and I'm me, you know, so you walk away going, okay, maybe I won't do that, George. <laughs> okay, it's a company, the company you keep, George. But he was, he was lovely to me, he really, we, you know, he's, he's a great guy. I re even now I still love him because he's an honest guy. And, and that says a lot too. That's probably why he's still doing what he's doing because he's truthful. He's true to himself. And I think that bodes well. If you're, if you're true to yourself, then you can sleep at night because you're not gonna go telling lies. You know, you can't lie to yourself. You're still gonna, you know, be you. And, and, and I love that about George. That's one thing I really loved about George. He was creative, but he was George. He was still him, you know. I was reading a story about your 2014 album, All That I Am, and it said the melody of a song came to you whilst you were doing 70 miles an hour on the M4. Now, the M4 is obviously a motorway very close to Henley, so we're very proud of this particular motorway. Please tell me you were in this area. Or tell me a bit more about the songwriting process in general. Well, I must have been in the vicinities. Please don't tell the cops. <laughs> 70 miles an hour, that's all right. Well, you know, it's kind of, your, you know, it's just one of those crazy things. People talk about how inspiration comes and when it yeah. comes, you can come at three o'clock in the morning. You know, if I'm in that vibe, because, I, I, you know, I'm starting to write now. And, yeah. and I mean, and that was, it must have been a tune I was trying to work on. And then if the, the melody must have come to me. Well, straight away, where's the, where's the phone? And, you know, today's technology, you just grab the phone and you record it. Yeah, and that's really, I just, I, I just, I love that process as well. I'm loving the writing side of things. Finally, what's next for you then? Well, more and more of the same. I'm back on the road tomorrow night with Jules. We're completing the summer tour. And then I'm going to seriously look at the next album, my next album, and um, book of poetry and stuff like that. Yeah, little bits and pieces I'm touring. A book of poetry? Why me? I might. You write poetry? I write, I'm writing all the time. And if they're not songs, they're poetry. But basically, it is. That's what songs are. It's a poetry. I'd love to see something. Ruby Turner, thank you so much. Hi, this is Melanie C and you're listening to the Henley Festival podcast. The Bedouin Tent at the Henley Festival is one of those places where the acts may not necessarily be as well known as Ruby Turner, but their stories are just as intriguing, none more so than Emma Stevens. Henley was pretty lucky that she was available at all, as her singer-songwriting skills are in demand all over the world, as you're about to find out. I'm hoping to bring quite a lot of sort of sparkly positivity and sort of a bit of a pop sort of vibe I think tonight um, with elements of folk, elements of country. I've just got back from Nashville um, where I wrote my lots, many of the songs from my third album um, over there so I'm bringing a bit of an interesting mix tonight and um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to playing. Tell me then a bit about uh, Nashville. I, how could you go there and not be influenced by, by the ways of the country, ways of country even? Was that the case? Oh, absolutely. I've always had a bit of a calling um, to Nashville. I mean, 
I, I got into country music uh, many years ago, actually. What for you would you say, what's your country music, big country music influences like? Older or kind of more new generation? It's more old, old generation, so I love Dolly Parton. I also really love the Dixie Chicks. Yes. And she, uh, Emily from the Dixie Chicks got me into playing the banjo. So I also play banjo, but I wasn't sure how banjo would go down at Henley Festival. I'm sure they would have loved it. You went over to, to to study songwriting, learn about songwriting. You went to LA. Yeah. I gave that a suitably big pause so you didn't think I was going to say Basingstoke or something like that. But wow, that's a big step. Yeah, I did. I went over there when I was about 20 and um, I met some incredible songwriters there. And, and one of one of whom has actually remained a, a hugely important person in my life and is one of my mentors, Charlie Midnight. He's a Grammy Award winning writer, very kind of old school and and I love him dearly, he's, he's an amazing man. So I feel very privileged to have made some great connections while I've been over there. Um, and Charlie and I have continued to write ever since actually, and um, he co-wrote a lot of the songs with me on my new album, To My Roots, which is coming out very soon. <laughs> Marvellous, <laughs> tell, yeah, tell us a bit more actually. about it. <laughs> yeah, To My Roots is basically, um, it's sort of inspired a bit by my trip to Nashville. Um, there's lots of incredible Nashville musicians on the album. Um, it was a big step for me because my first two albums, I was very proud that I'd played everything on them myself. When I went to Nashville, <laughs> I realised just what I was missing. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to just let, let, let it go a little bit and get more people in. So, so it's a bit of a collaboration, this album, with, with my, um, my fellow friends and co-workers that I met in Nashville. It's amazing what you say there, because maybe 40, 50 years ago, uh, Bob Dylan went to Nashville and said pretty much exactly the same as you said. So you were in pretty good company there. Well, I didn't know that. The quality of the musicianship <laughs> and things like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just... It's just not like nowhere else. If you love music, Nashville, Nashville and Henley Festival are the places to go. <laughs> for sure. Well done. Well done. Uh, now, um, you also wrote a song for a Korean boy band. Oh, I knew I this come And on. North or South Korea, first of all. South and Korea. No I thought it might there. be. <laughs> and also, I, we, we laugh about it, but you sold 100,000 copies. That must have been a massive boost to your career. It was really interesting, actually, because. When I wrote that song, I went into a, uh, a co-writing session and it was at a time where I was writing for a lot of other people, uh, not just myself. So I went into the session with a guy called Will Sims and we just had fun. We didn't think anything of it. We thought, oh, let's just, let's just write a song and have fun and not really, you know, sort of try too hard. And um, the next day I heard from his publisher that this um, it had been sent to the boy band in Korea, which are actually like Take That in South Korea. They're huge. And, um, and they loved it. And so... They, they've cut it and it's very funny listening to it now because it's actually translated as well so none of the lyrics are in English it's all in Korean and it, it, it's it's quite funny but it, it was great uh, it was a great opportunity it opened a few doors and um, showed I guess <clears throat> I can be a versatile writer as well I don't just write sort of singer songwritery uh, music I can I like a challenge and I'm always up for, for co-writing and collaborating with other people and other musicians Mitch Ben and you're listening to the Henley Festival podcast. Finally then, we started this podcast with a cup of bulletproof coffee from Russell Kane. Now for something a bit more, well, uh, 
alcoholic. The thinking drinkers are journalists turned comedy performers with a critically acclaimed and unique act, a mix of free booze and laughs, so it should be quite obvious why I wanted to interview them. I spoke to Ben and Tom as they were preparing for the show. So yes, we are pouring drinks because the main thrust of our show is about drinking and in the show we give our audience members a drink uh, so that they can really get a great understanding of um, what we're talking about and uh, an appreciation for good drinking. Uh, we try to encourage people to drink less but better. Hopefully everyone at Henley has been doing that um, <laughs> today. Uh, yes, there's every chance they haven't. Um, but we, So we've got about 400 people who are coming in and so we're having, frantically pouring um, 400 shots to make sure they've all got uh, a drink in hand. When we, when we go through the show, it's a kind of a comedy, um, theatrical performance, but we also talk about the history of drink and all yeah. the people behind it. And... And it's nice when people hear these stories to have a drink in their hand and then we can talk them through it. It must cost... Did it cost you a fortune to do this? No, we're lucky enough that the, the because we're drinks in experts and we've been doing this for 20 years, oh. the, the people we talk to, we can pick and choose the products we like. So we've got Adnams Gin, we've got Diplomatico Venezuelan Rum, we've got a Talisca Whiskey and we've got a Bullet Bourbon and Fuller's have given kindly given us some Frontier Beer. So these are all people we okay. sort of work with and they give us these lovely drinks. Now you've mentioned all those drinks names I, I just feel obliged to say that, that Moet and Chandon Champagne is a wonderful champagne as sponsors of the event <laughs> isn't that right that is correct I've actually uh, I've been over there to Champagne and it's a fantastic house and yes a fantastic well drink done. So there, marvellous yes, well I, done I well done everybody so to you now Ben tell me how did this whole show come to be well our background Tom and I as uh, as drinks writers and experts so we've been writing about drink uh, I write mostly about beer Tom's very much a spirits and cocktails expert we've been doing it for for years and we've written books on beer books on spirits cocktails um, and as we were writing about it we were also started doing tastings at food festivals and um, and we've just found that wine tastings and beer tastings a bit boring <laughs> so we started we found them boring so we started just throwing a few jokes in here and there and to cut a long story short we went up to Edinburgh to do a food festival we stayed up there to see the, the, fe- the fringe festival there yeah. uh, we'd been up before really really enjoyed it and thought well why don't we have a have a stab at that and that was in 2011 we got together with a director and a producer and we, we instead of just doing a taste we decided to make it a, a sort of co- comedy piece of comedy theatre really so people because we people look people remember things more if they if they if they laugh if they find it interesting well just telling people what a, what a beer or a spirit tastes like is pretty boring but if you tell them about the cultural historical context behind it whilst dressed in a daft costume and drop, <laughs> dropping the odd uh, dodgy dodgy gag then it all soaks in much more and people you know that's what we try and make create an atmosphere where having a drink is is a laugh but you also learn a lot and uh, and you get to taste a few things as well we begin. Our journey of drinking discovery, we begin it 
further down the Thames in West London, where the beer that is in your hands right now has been brewed. It's called Frontier, and it's the first drink of the evening. If you have a can in front of you, open it now. Has everyone got one? Now, you mentioned just a moment ago that you all dress up in funny garb. I'm looking behind you here, Ben. I can see some suitcases, vintage suitcases. I can see some kind of coat, I think, but also a pair of stiletto heels. Ben or Tom, which one of you wears those? We do both wear those. That is a... That's nothing to do with the show. It's just a personal (laughs) affectation. Um, Yes, there are some weird costumes. Um, uh, You you probably won't be seeing it, so I can uh, tell you that one of us strips down to a a thong. I will Um, be staying. Okay. I am now. You are now. Um, And yes, Ben dresses as Al Capone. All of the characters that we dress up as have a context in the drinks world. Two things I'd like to know. Um, Firstly, what do other comedians think of you guys? Secondly, what do your former journalistic colleagues think of you guys? Start with yourself, Kenton. Well, we're still journalists, so we write for The Spectator and The Telegraph and for the trade press. Um, So we've managed to keep that side of our careers going. We still write the books. We're still considered experts. So it's been important to keep that going because that gives it credibility. I think the comedians um, accept that we're not uh, necessarily... uh, Russell Kane's been on before us this evening. We're clearly not Russell Kane. Um, But the comedy's not that bad. And I think that, you know... (laughs) One for the the poster. Some of the gags are all right. So, and I think people except that this is uh, it's a lot of different things in one show it's not stand-up comedy it's not a lecture uh, it's not just about drinking free drinks there's there's a whole uh, different all these different elements and i think increasingly what we find at the fringe in particular in particular is actually audiences like that they like to get an hour of something completely different but in terms of our our ex-colleagues i don't know what they think about us some of them i couldn't give it (laughs) <laughs> uh, they think you're a bit of an idiot. Yeah, 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 but they thought that when I worked with them. The world. This is a show that celebrates alcohol. Well, that's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, it is. And as we celebrate alcohol, we're going to travel around the world and tell you about some magnificent drinks. And as we do that, we're going to give out some more free drinks. Yeah. Finally, then, guys. Um, and you're not allowed to... You, let's let's presume the answer would be Moet and Chandon. You're not allowed to use that one as the answer to this question. What, in your opinion is the perfect festival drink. The perfect festival drink um, is, I'm trying to think, like a nice sort of three and a half percent beer that you can drink all day responsibly and it won't, and it just keeps you nicely refreshed. There's a bit of flavour to it and you can, uh, and it won't ruin it, ruin your evening. And then top it up with uh, a magnum of Moet and coincidentally, a magnum of Moet and Chandon is also the perfect accompaniment to the Henley Festival podcast. Finally then, thanks for listening. Coming up in future episodes, you'll be hearing from Goldie, Sarah Pascoe, Stephen K. Amos. The list goes on and on. Remember to subscribe and the next offering will be available in a couple of weeks. And if you've yet to hear it, why not go back and check out episode one, which features Melanie C, amongst others. Remember to keep an eye on the website, henley-festival.co.uk and our social media for details about the 2018 festival. And we hope to see you there.